And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach... The exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to, like, 1910. Today is Friday. Yes, indeed, it is Friday, you little climate zealot twit. We are going to be having a special roundtable today where we're going to be talking about global greening, which is why I'm in the background of the tropical forest. You know, one of the things that is really bad about climate alarmism is the fact that they only focus on the bad. They never talk about the benefits. They never talk about how humanity is doing you know, in in the face of these challenges that they say are going to destroy the world. Of course, it's all about bad for them. It's all about doom. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the good side of things today. With us today uh, is a different kind of a panel. Uh, Dr. Sterling Burnett normally joins us. He's uh, off today on a special mission. And we have, of course, Linnea Lucan with us today. Dr. Will Happer also joins us. And he's going to be talking about carbon dioxide and some of its benefits and some of the issues related to it. We were scheduled to have Dr. Patrick Moore on today, um, and he has been uh, technically unreachable for some reason. There might be an internet problem. We don't know. It's possible he may join us in progress. Uh, so we'll just go with the flow, so to say. Um, first, uh, I want to welcome Dr. Happer, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Anthony. A pleasure. So um, one of the things I want to get off started off with is you know, the topic of global greening. And so we just recently published a brand new climate at a glance. Um, and that climate at a glance at our website, climateataglance.com, talks about global greening. And that top graphic there is a picture of the globe, uh, which is um, showing what's called NVDI, which is a vegetation differential index, and it's showing that much of the planet, except for parts of the Sahara uh, and the uh, Arab states, are pretty darn green. And of course, there's Greenland, which is not green and never has been, but except for the, the tiny portions of the coast. But this particular global greening summary talks about the fact that NASA satellites have been able over the last 30 years to determine that the Thanks to the fertilization of the atmosphere with carbon dioxide, which plants use for photosynthesis and for growth, we have seen uh, basically an area larger than the United States, a surface area larger than the United States, increase in greenery. And we have seen places like the deserts, like the Sahara, start to shrink because plants are coming in along the edges now. And it, it's really a fantastic thing. The planet is sucking up this CO2 and enjoying it immensely, at least the plants are. And so this is a huge positive benefit that never gets reported in the media, never gets talked about by the climate alarmists, because, you know, their whole agenda is about gloom and doom. We must do this to avoid gloom and doom, and the we must do this side of it is about control of you. So there's that. Also, I want to point out that in a timeline scenario of carbon dioxide over, uh, you know, millennia, we're in a much more interesting period. Let's go to this next graph, Andy. There it is. We're actually in a famine for carbon dioxide globally. Now, this graph here is from a study published in 2001 by Berner, and it was recently updated and displayed by uh, one of our followers, John Shuchuk. Um, but interestingly enough about this graph, it shows the parts per million of atmospheric concentration on the left and the timeline going backwards on the bottom. Today, we've got this blip going up to around 420 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. But compared to past millennia, 
we're it's nothing. It's nothing. It's it's just a blip. And so the optimum for plants and people that know greenhouses is in the a thousand to about fourteen hundred parts per million range, and we're down around four twenty. That red line of death at the bottom, that is where there's not enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for plants to sustain photosynthesis. And look how close we've come to that, uh, particularly a few thousand years ago during the Ice Age, when a lot of the plant got covered up by ice and photosynthesis wasn't happening. And, you know, there was just a not, we came close to having a plant extinction on the planet. And yet our climate alarmist friends would have you believe that, you know, this increase in carbon dioxide that we've seen, which is just a blip in the whole scheme of things, is going to destroy the earth, it's going to destroy plant life, it's going to cause crops to fail, uh, you know, death and destruction raining from the skies related to weather. You know, it's all bad. And so that's the preface of today's show. So uh, first I want to start off with talking with Dr. Happer. You've recently published some interesting uh, papers on carbon dioxide and concentrations um, and climate sensitivity and all these sorts of things. Can you kind of give a little background of where you've been with that? Well, I think very few people realize how ineffective CO2 is as a uh, greenhouse gas for warming the earth. You know, they talk about uh, (laughs) the increase uh, of CO2 from 300 to 400 parts per million over the past uh, 50 years or so. And uh, very few people realize how tiny that effect is on Earth's uh, climate. If you were to double CO2, say go from today's 400 to 800, how much do you think you would decrease uh, radiation to space? You know, you ask the average person, they've no idea. But I can tell you the idea, because this is my field, I understand this very well. You decrease radiation to space by 1%. 1%. And uh, that's from an that, 100%. That's all? Not more than that? You get 100% increase in CO2, 1% decrease of radiation to space. So uh, that's that basically that 1% translates to just a little bit of warming, right? A little bit of warming. I can even, you can even do a calculation in your head of how much warming you would get from 1%. And uh, let's do it now. Uh, you know, radiation uh, increases very rapidly with temperature. You know, to first approximation, it increases as the fourth power of the temperature. This is the famous T to the fourth law. You know, it's not quite that, but it's pretty close. And so if there's a 1% increase, uh, uh, there's a 1% decrease in radiation to space, that would mean the sun is heating us 1% more than we're cooling. And so to compensate, you have to increase the temperature of the earth a little bit, you know, to bring solar heating back into balance uh, with radiation cooling. But you only have to increase the temperature by one quarter of a percent, not one percent. So the radiation decreases one percent. That means you need a one quarter percent increase in temperature. Okay, well, the abs- that's absolute temperature. Absolute temperature is around 300 Kelvin. A quarter of a percent of 300 Kelvin is 0.75 centigrade. You can't feel 0.75 centigrade. You know, it's three quarters of a degree centigrade from doubling CO2. We're a long way from doubling CO2. So it's true the temperature is increasing, but it's very hard to see that much of that increase is due to CO2. Some of it probably is, but most of it is probably the recovery from the little ice age that ended around the year 1800 and it's been warming ever since and right right and of course then there's our own our own uh local geoengineering of our climate you know we build more infrastructure more concrete more asphalt more buildings use more energy and so the thermometers are all near where we exist to where we live right we don't have oh, absolutely right, Anthony, and uh, that—that's the famous urban heat island uh, effect, which you've been so effective in demonstrating. And uh, 
And as you know, if you look at uh, really good stations that are not affected by the urban heat island effect, they show much less warming, than, you know, than these contaminated stations. So just getting good data is hard. And the reason it's hard is because the warming isn't very much. It's a tiny amount of warming. You can't feel the warming that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, go ahead, Linnea. Sure. Um, so, Dr. Happer, and I know I'm not sure if everyone in our audience is aware of your background and everything. Um, you're an atomic physicist uh, and your life's work has been in um, optics. In And so one of the major contributions that you've made to science is in adaptive optics, allowing us to see outside of the Earth's atmosphere. So you have a very comprehensive understanding of atmospheric science. What kind of pushback, because I know you do get some pushback on your perspective on the climate issue from people who probably, I mean, aren't as deep into uh, atmospheric optics as you are. And, and of course, anything that has to do with, with energy coming in and out of the atmosphere, that is what the climate change argument or the global warming caused by CO2 argument is based around. So if you want to expand on some of your own background and um, maybe some of the difficulties that you've had with people from your own field and maybe outside of it, I think that might be interesting to the audience. Well, most of my colleagues at Princeton have been pretty good to me and uh, other parts of the physics community. And uh, lots of physicists, uh, you know, secretly know that uh, you know, the alarm over climate is uh, grossly exaggerated, but they're afraid to speak out. You know, I can speak out because uh, this came along as I was approaching retirement and there's not much that can be done to my career now if I tell the truth. Uh, but that's not true of younger people. You know, they uh, they will suffer. That's been demonstrated many times. I guess the only... Uh, direct effect it's had on me is that uh, it's very difficult to publish anything. You know, I, as you say, I, this is my field, so I know a lot more about it than most climate scientists. Um, and, um, but it's impossible to publish. Uh, yeah, right, I, I, because... I feel bad about, about the younger people who are associated with me. For example, I have a young colleague, William Van Weingarten, who is not as close to retirement and, uh, this definitely is uh, not good for his career that he does lots and lots of good work, but he's unable to publish in mainstream journals. Uh, and there are other people like us. We're certainly not unique. Um, well, and that's and that's what part of what is so cynical and what's so cruel about the narrative that, you know, 99% of scientists agree because they look at all these papers and they look for people who either, you know, just mention climate change in general or seem to be um, saying that human addition of CO2 is what's causing a lot of the warming. And if you're blocked from publishing for having a different perspective on this, then they're getting a skewed data set to begin with when they're trying to argue that most scientists agree with them. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, Roman historian uh, Tacitus, uh, I guess, who was describing a speech made by Calgacus, you know, after the Roman invasion of Britain. And Calgacus was trying to rally the few remaining uh, British patriots to resist the Romans and uh, describing the Roman Empire, he says, they make a desert and call it peace. <laughs> they make a desert and call it peace. And that's what the climate establishment has done. They've simply, uh, you know, decapitated any opposition. And so nobody is able to publish anything that does not support the narrative. In mainstream journals, you can always find some journal that will publish it, but it, it doesn't have the weight, you know, of the major journals. And that's completely deliberate. You know, it, uh, it's, it's not accidental. Well, well yeah, been... the whole the whole climate crusade is deliberate. It's about power and control, because if yeah, you can well, control right. energy, you can control everything. Well, well it, I've it, been appalled by the standard of stuff that does get published. I mean, this is stuff that's really not much more than, I don't know, 
building a computer game practically and <laughs> running it and then saying, ah, oh, look at how our computer game ran. Isn't this proof of what we're trying to say? And yeah. I don't, yeah, it's very right. disappointing to see. The you know, that, that's a good point, Linnea. We could build yeah, a climate computer game. And... We, we were supposed to be talking about the benefits of CO2, not about the physics of CO2. And yeah, you know, well, it in benefits too. You know, I grew up in a rural area, so I've always been interested, you know, in how plants grow. And there's right. no question, that, as you showed in your introductory slides, that the earth is greening. You know, that's a, I don't know if you've looked into how they do those measurements, but it's, it's really very, very clever. You know, it turns out that chlorophyll, uh, when it's, uh, illuminated by sunlight actually doesn't use all of that energy, you know, to make sugar or to make heat. It, it, it uh, re-emits some as fluorescence in the near infrared. And so what they're looking at is the chlorophyll fluorescence um, and you that's not easy to see because you're looking down at the earth which is brilliant in the sunlight you know you've got all this backscattered sunlight that has nothing to do with chlorophyll it's coming from the sand it's coming from the water uh, so the trick that they use is they look at the uh, infilling of the of the D lines of the sun these are dark lines where there's no light because of absorption basically because of the greenhouse effect on the sun itself. But because of the fluorescence of chlorophyll, you can uh, see the lines filling in. So I, I won't belabor this, but it, it's a very, very clever trick that they use on the satellites to make those images that uh, you displayed. And everybody knows that CO2 benefits uh, plant growth. You know, there are lots and lots of commercial greenhouses that... Uh, routinely pump in CO2. Uh, Anthony, you mentioned that you thought somewhere around 1500 was optimum. Uh, that's really optimum for a greenhouse operator. Plants would like more than that. Uh, the trouble with the greenhouse operator is he has to pay for the CO2, you know, so it's the right. usual <laughs> business trade-off, you know, what does uh, it cost me to make CO2 and where where is the uh, sweet spot where I get the maximum profit. It's not what the plants would like. They would like more. Uh, yeah, that's, that's totally true. Yet, you know, their plants thrived, you know, back at the age of the dinosaurs, you know, when we had 5,000 parts per million. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, to demonize CO2, you know, to talk about carbon pollution, here we are, these uh, participants in this, conversation we're made of carbon you know life is based on carbon you know when people used to talk about organic chemistry they said it was the chemistry of carbon you know the chemistry of life and so you know each of us breathes out you know approximately two pounds of co2 a day you, you know multiply yeah. that by what eight billion people you know that's a lot of co2 just from people being alive and are we really polluting the earth and, uh, you know, some people say, yes, we are. We've got a couple well, the number these, of people. And <laughs> these are the, the people that say that we are polluting the earth are the people that are demanding that we make lifestyle changes. And, you know, but it's also the same people that are completely hypocritical about it. People like Al Gore and John Kerry, who live lavish lifestyles, flying around the globe, lecturing to people, yeah. saying, you know, you need to reduce your CO2 footprint. But really, it's only about you, not for me, because I'm special. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and there was a there was a study, I can't recall if we talked about this before on Climate Change Roundtable, or if we talked about it maybe at one of our conferences. But that study that came up that was... Um, that showed that people who talk to their houseplants, yeah. you know, when they're caring for them or if they're singing or they're whatever, when they're caring for their houseplants, that the houseplants actually had a noticeable uh, benefit to growth over ones that don't. Mm -hmm. And of course, non-scientists who looked at that, they were like, oh, well, you know, plants are alive and they just like it that you're thinking about them or whatever the argument is, some kind of kind of hippie thing. But really what it is, is you're, you know, 
breathing CO2 on them while you're nearby them. And uh, that's that's probably has a lot more. Talking about the uh, large amount of CO2 you breathe out your breath. Yeah. 40,000 parts per million, you know, plants love that. (laughs) Of course. Diluted quite a bit. It's still a help to your house plants. So please talk to your geraniums. Uh, so, Dr. Happer, I want to ask you a question about um, CO2 concentration. Now, one of the, I know this isn't about global greening, but you know what? We're going to do a freeform show here. Pretty much anything goes. Yeah. Um, back when we first started with the whole thing, back in 1988 with Dr. James Hansen, and he published his three different scenarios, they based their view of those scenarios or the models on climate sensitivity. Basically, what's going to happen to the temperature of the atmosphere for a doubling of climate, uh, climate uh, carbon dioxide in it? <laughs> anyway, so my question is, why do you think that they're having so much trouble nailing down climate sensitivity? I mean, we've got observational estimates that are on the low end, you know, a half a degree to maybe a degree centigrade. And then we've got some of these computer models like RCP 8.5, which are showing six to seven degrees centigrade for a doubling of CO2. Science has not been able to nail this down in over 30 years. Why do you think they're having so much trouble nailing down the real climate sensitivity? Well, I think the basic problem is that they don't like the answer that the real climate sensitivity (laughs) is less than one degree, probably. You know, and they they know that, you know, that's the first thing you learn when you do a climate model, that uh, the on-feedback sensitivity is around a degree or a little bit less. We just did a calculation in our heads that it's 0.75 degrees centigrade for doubling CO2. So these big figures require enormously uh, large positive feedbacks that, Usually you say, well, okay, it does something to the water vapor distribution over altitude or does something to clouds, you know, because water vapor and clouds are the main drivers of climate. It's not CO2. CO2 is, you know, kind of a a third rate performer. Clouds are number one, water vapor is number two, and then comes CO2. So they've got to somehow amplify the effects of CO2 by... uh, factors of four, five, six, to get the large sensitivities that you quote. Now, you know, if you think about that, that that's really uh, very unusual. You know, most feedbacks in nature and chemistry, you know, the natural world are not positive, they're negative. There's even a name for that. It's called Le Chatelier's Principle. Go look it up on Google <laughs> and what people observe in most other systems is that if you change one thing to try and make something increase, that other things uh, change in a way to resist that and to decrease what you would do without the feedback. You know, so most feedbacks in nature are negative. And yet here we have this uh, climate feedback that's hugely positive. It's not just a little bit. It's hugely positive. It's close to the feedbacks that you get on high explosives. And you, you sort of know that that's not true. The earth has been around for four billion years, according to geological evidence. And there's no chance, there's no evidence that the climate has ever exploded. And there've been lots of excursions of CO2, big excursions. And there's never been any positive feedback to make the climate right. explode. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of that came from back in the early eighties when we've, you know, saw the probes going to Venus and so forth. And people like Carl Sagan were out there screaming, you know, that we may find the earth run into, uh, go into a runaway greenhouse effect, you know, and, and we've been in, you know, back in the age of the dinosaurs with 5,000 parts per million or more. And we didn't go into a runaway greenhouse effect. The whole thing is just preposterous. And yet, even today, we still have some people pushing this idea and the media, you know, which most of the media reporters are dumber than a post. They just follow whatever people tell them. They grab onto one particular thing and regurgitate it ad nauseum. They don't bother to investigate it. And so they'll even run with it. It's just, it's just really disappointing. Yeah, you're right, Anthony. I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about Venus because that's an interesting point. And frequently when I hear people debate 
from the alarmist side, they say, I don't want Earth to turn into Venus. Well, there are a number of things that uh, are being glossed over there. First of all, Venus is quite a bit closer to the sun, you know, and it therefore gets approximately twice the solar heating that the Earth does. (laughs) So that's a big factor. That's 100% more sunshine. And so you would naturally expect it to be hotter. The second thing about Venus is as a result of being closer to the sun, long ago, it lost most of its water. So Earth is the water planet. Venus probably had a lot of water, too, when the solar system was formed, but it was baked out by the sun, mostly because of the hydrogen dissociation. And so Venus uh, has uh, an atmosphere that's almost pure CO2, as you alluded to. It's close to 80 times the density of Earth's atmosphere. And uh, the reason for that is there's no water to turn that CO2 into limestone on Earth. Most of the CO2 is not in the atmosphere or even in the oceans. It's in thousands of feet of limestone and dolomite, you know, <laughs> you know, in the mountains, you know. And, yeah. You know, what, you make an interesting point about limestone. I am surprised that some crazy alarmist person hasn't come up with some kind of alarming scenario where the limestone is going to release all its CO2 and we're all going to cook. <laughs> well, Anthony, I think that's part of the the acidification argument, isn't it? That, that if, if there's a little bit too much ocean, if the ocean pH somehow goes to acid instead of uh, base, that it will begin to, to dissolve limestone cliffs and stuff and and right. coral reefs and yeah uh, yeah the cliffs of dover are gonna melt and roast england <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it's, it's amazing how much misinformation is out there and and how much is believed you know it's uh part, part of the problem is the uh poor scientific education that so many people get and so they're easy targets it's easy to fool them uh, they they can't uh, question it on their own, and uh, so they have to listen. And, and you know, in everyday life, you normally listen to the majority. And so the uh, so the climate movement has done everything in its power to look like only a few kooks uh, oppose the mainstream narrative, and the majority believes in it. And uh, you know, so this is the uh, consensus uh, <laughs> uh, argument that. I think Linnea uh, touched on briefly, and uh, it's completely phony. It's, uh, you know, science is not determined by consensus. It's determined by whether your theories agree with observation and, uh, you know, climate theories don't agree with observation, so they're wrong. (laughs) You know, every time consensus seems to have entered into science, it almost seems like it's almost always wrong. I mean, you know, with Galileo, for example, right. you know, and the Earth right. is the center of the universe. Right. Uh, and then we've had we had consensus about, you know, medical issues related to the germs really didn't exist. It was other things, you know, and washing your hands was a crazy concept before surgery. You know, right. uh, that was a consensus and it was wrong. And then right. there was a consensus about more recently that ulcers were caused by stress you know, and, a, and an internist in Australia said that this is bogus. It had to do with this this bacterium that's infecting the lining of the stomach. And right. the consensus was, well, your bacteria can't live in the stomach. It's too acidic. So this guy proved it by drinking this bacterium and gave himself ulcers. He ended right. up getting a Nobel Prize for it, right. but he that's bucked right. the consensus. And that's, that's the right. whole thing with climate. Climate right now is about consensus. But the bottom line is, is that, a history of science and consensus has been almost uniquely bad. It's never worked. That's completely true. But it's surprising how many people uh, believe that science is determined by consensus, you know, that uh, you get a group of sensible people together and they vote on what scientific truth and that's what the truth is. You know, <laughs> you don't like the law of gravity well repeal the law of gravity makes life a lot easier you know you can walk around a lot easier you know so but it's certainly save fuel costs uh leaving the planet's surface that's right yeah yeah um well i to get back to a little bit of the greening issue so 
when I was in high school, the the line was that the planet was undergoing desertification. So everywhere, you know, all of the forests were dying. We were going to, because of the heat, we were going to have so much drought, so much terrible weather that the deserts were expanding. Well, it seems that objectively that's not happening. Um, but what would happen if like in a crazy hypothetical world where, I don't know, some other feedback didn't happen if you started to do this, if if they really put the pedal to the metal on like carbon capture. Now, I'm skeptical that this could work anyway, because after we saw from um, the COVID lockdowns and stuff, there was almost no detectable movement in the amount of CO2 that was entering the atmosphere at all. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the vast majority of it is coming from the oceans and um, whatever else. So, but what if they did start putting away carbon dioxide, taking it out of the atmosphere and putting it into whatever these cisterns are that they're trying to make for it? Um, Do you anticipate that that could maybe have a bad effect? (laughs) I mean, we were talking about that red line of death on the chart there. And I'm thinking, well, if if you pull out even further onto like the billions of years scales, you can see that it seems like between every interglacial CO2 gets a little bit lower. It comes back a little bit less. And it almost seems, and I think I've heard Dr. Moore make this argument, that if we had not started using fossil fuels, that there is a chance that it could have continued to decline um, and cause some real serious problems for life on the planet into the future. Now, I don't know if that's kind of abusing data or not, or if I'm misquoting, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, you know, uh, there is pretty good evidence uh, that at the uh, last glacial maximum, when CO2 levels dropped to maybe 200, 180 parts per million, that there was uh, plant starvation of CO2, especially at high altitudes. You know, it's one thing to be at sea level, you know, with CO2 at relatively high pressure, but if you're at a high altitude, uh, you get a double whammy. There's not enough CO2 because of the low pressure, and you're also much more stressed for water because uh, transpiration through the leaves is much faster at high altitude. So there's quite a bit of evidence that there was uh, desertification of uh, places like the uh, Central Asia, Gobi Desert, you know, Western U.S., uh, places now where it's green, where we're simply uh, rubble and, and stone and, and dust uh, at the last glacial maximum. One thing you notice from the ice cores, for example, in Antarctica and Greenland, is that uh, at the last glacial maximum, the ice is extremely dusty. There was very little CO2 and there's lots and lots of dust. So it was a time when there were worldwide dust storms that went all the way, you know, from wherever they originate, probably closer to the tropics, to all the way to Antarctica. So I'm sure it was you know, like, like Mars or something. <laughs> you know, I, you know, we had we had a little bit of trouble with uh, smoke this summer, you know, from the Canadian wildfires. But during the last glacial maximum, that was the norm, you know, and it wasn't smoke. It was dust, you know. Right. And that's not so crazy for people even today to picture, because even today you get a haze in Florida sometimes from Saharan dust making its way across the Atlantic. So that's not too out there for people to be able to grasp. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I I don't know. This whole thing is just so crazy. We've demonized this gas of life, carbon dioxide, which um, plants love. which is essential for life. And uh, it's, it's just astonishing that you could get away with that. You know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure that a hundred years from now, if humanity survives uh, all of these attempts to save the planet, that there will be lots of doctoral dissertations written about how could people be so stupid in the year 2023 to believe all this nonsense, you know, the same way we read, we write now about uh, 
the eras of witch burnings, you know, how could people believe in all of that? But uh, they did. And uh, in our country, for example, the Salem witch trials, uh, over half the judges had Harvard degrees, you know. <laughs> so it, it was not knuckle-dragging ignoramuses who were driving the witch trials. It was the elite, the academic elite. Yeah, that's sort of happening today. You know, the if you talk to the average American, they've got a lot more common sense about this and are a lot more skeptical, you know, than the uh, wine and cheese drinking elites of academia and, you know, penthouses in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles, maybe Chicago, too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, this this graph here is one of the mm-hmm. most important graphs for humanity related to carbon dioxide. Now, I want to point out that we have had tremendous increases in crop yields throughout the last 100 years, at the same time that carbon dioxide has been going up. Carbon dioxide is responsible for a portion of this, and we've also got, you know, improved genetics, improved breeding practices to, you know, minimize sensitivity to heat and to drought and uh, to provide better yield and things like that. So those all figure in. But one has to wonder, how much lower would a graph like this look over the past 100 years, had we not increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Well, there have been some recent, there have been many papers written on this, and they all agree that CO2 is increasing crop yields of every crop. It doesn't matter whether it's soybeans or wheat or or corn, uh, even sugarcane. You know, that's a little surprising because corn and sugarcane are C4 plants, which are less uh, sensitive to low CO2 than most plants. and uh, But they, what they usually find is that CO2 causes the yield to increase by of the order of 1% or some fraction of a percent per uh, part per million of CO2. You know, so if CO2 is increased by 30% on, you know, in the last uh, 50, 100 years, uh, you would expect about 30% of the increase in plant yield would be from CO2. As you said, there are many other factors that have been very important. There are better varieties. Uh, the massive use of fertilizer, especially nitrogen fertilizer, has been a very big deal. But CO2 has been part of it. There's no no question that we would lose a lot of agricultural uh, productivity if, as Linnea says, <laughs> we extract the CO2 from the air, which is, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I don't know where you would put it. And mm-hmm. why would you want to get rid of this beneficial part of our biosphere? <laughs> right. Well, and, and well, actually, a lot of it um, for that carbon capture stuff, they're talking about putting it into um, like rock reservoirs, the way that you would keep um, oil and gas for reserves. So, uh, and as Sterling, if he was here, he could have gone off on this. It's probably a very bad idea to be doing that, uh, in general, but, um, it's a waste of money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's probably dangerous too. You know, every now and then these reservoirs leak and, uh, you know, it's really true that if you breathe only CO2, if you're in a pure CO2 atmosphere, it will kill you. You suffocate. And that happens naturally from time to time. There was this famous uh, the lake in Africa in Africa, where this lake burped out huge amounts of CO2 and it killed thousands of people, lots of livestock. And uh, that could happen with some of these geological reservoirs that people are talking about, too. You know, so this is really CO2 is heavier than air. So if it it, under pressure coming up from the ground, it's going to spread across the surface. It's not going to disperse in the atmosphere. That's right. It takes a long time to disperse. It eventually disperses, but it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, we have to store that CO2 to prevent the Earth from destroying itself. Anyway, so uh, let's go to some of the questions that we've had. Um, we had a number of questions pop up in comments. Uh, let's bring up uh, the first one and see what we've got. Chris Shattuck asks, for Dr. Happer, what is your opinion of Frank's work on uncertainty and Ott Shulazong work regarding radiation versus convection conduction, which is the inverse of the IPCC 95 slash 5% estimate? 
Well, I'm uh, I'm not completely sure about the uh, uh, reference that you're making, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and wing it. Uh, certainly, convection uh, is dominant at this time of day. You know, I'm sitting here at Princeton at you know, around noon, and uh, most of the heat transfer is rising hot air. It's not radiation at all. And so certainly during the daytime and in the, in the troposphere, uh, convection is the major heat transport mechanism. That's particularly true when it's moist because you're bringing up a lot of latent heat from the uh, water vapor that's rising up. Uh, it eventually condenses into clouds and releases the latent heat several kilometers above your head. So people, uh, I think, uh, underestimate how important convection is. Once you get above the 30,000 feet, 35,000 feet, the tropopause, uh, convection and basically stops. Mm-hmm. So everything above that altitude is radiation. Right. But where we live, convection is a very, very important part of, uh, of climate. It's the main right. part of climate. So here's another question from Chris Nisbet, and this is pretty important because this is basically the heart of positive feedback. Could Dr. Happer talk to us a little bit about the idea that the little bit of warming due to carbon dioxide causes more water vapor to evaporate into the atmosphere, therefore causing even more warming, i.e. a positive feedback? Well, uh, that's very roughly the cartoon picture of uh, the positive feedback that IPCC uses, you know, they dress it up with all sorts of sophistication. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence for that. Uh, we already talked about the geological record. If that were true, we're, we're living on a water planet that's been a water planet for billions of years, and there's no evidence uh, at all that uh, there's ever been runaway climate, uh, uh, you know, feedback. So, uh, in fact, there there are people who argue that the feedback from uh, water vapor may actually be negative. Uh, Dick Lindzen, for example, has argued very forcefully uh, that there is this iris uh, negative feedback effect that as uh, you get more evaporation, more convection, uh, clouds tend to form at lower altitudes. And that, that's quite important because it means the cloud tops are warmer than they were before. And so they're radiating heat into space actually more as a result of the increased uh, convective uh, transport of water. Because, yeah, I mean, the, the earth basically acts a little bit like a, um, you know, to, to an engineer or physicist, it works a little bit like a heat pipe. You know, the troposphere, you've got all of this heat transfer by convection. And and you carry all this warm air up, you know, toward the troposphere. It, it has to get back down. <laughs> what goes up must come down. What allows it to get down is its radiation into empty space with the help of greenhouse gases and cloud tops. And clouds yeah. cover about half the earth, so cloud tops are at least as important and probably more important than greenhouse gases. Yeah. But it, it's amazing how many people in the um, alarmist side of things don't understand the basic mechanisms of things like convection, you know, feral cells, Hadley cells, that kind of stuff. They're, they don't understand how the atmosphere works. Their whole viewpoint is that carbon dioxide is essentially just causing hotness and that's it, you know, and the hotness is going to destroy everything. They don't really get into the details of how the earth works. And here's the thing. The earth has worked just fine for millions of years before we started worrying about carbon dioxide concentration. And right. it's likely to work just fine millions of years into the future, even, you know, if carbon dioxide increases. Um, it figures itself out. It's self-balancing, self-regulating. It's also done the experiment with more CO2. You showed graphs right at the beginning of this uh, session of the much higher CO2 levels in the past. And the earth was just fine in those times. It was burdened, you know, full of uh, greenery and, and life. And uh, so there's a, there is nothing unprecedented happening now. 
Yeah. Anything that happens is more likely to be good, much more likely to be good than bad. Right. Okay, so let's bring on the next question from our viewers. Bill Peckney asks, is anybody still challenging Hytran? Um, and before you answer that, you'll have to tell us what Hytran is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Hytran is this huge list of uh, data on absorption of radiation by greenhouse gases. It was started at Air Force Cambridge Laboratory up, I think, in Hanscom Air Force Base many, many years ago because many of these issues are very important to other people besides climate uh, fanatics. <laughs> you know, for the Air Force, for example, where I started getting interested in this, I was very interested in CO2, not because of climate, but because of the propagation of high power lasers, you know, if you try to propagate a CO2 laser through the air, you know, it, it gets all sorts of uh, problems, thermal blooming and God knows what due to uh, the CO2 that's there. So the Air Force, to their credit, uh, began and systematically uh, studying uh, absorption of atmospheric gases many, many decades ago. These the people who did it are heroes. They should get a medal for it. And that's a HITRAN database. And they've added to it and added to it. And uh, I've used it. Others have used it. Uh, I, I've checked it, you know, and uh, in any way I can. And I think it's a very good database. There are parts of it that are better than others. You know, an example of where it's not terribly good yet is for things like halocarbons, you know, freons and things like that. Uh, there you can get some data, but the high-trend people themselves say this was preliminary and, and don't take it too seriously. But for the main gases, for water vapor, for CO2, for methane, nitrous oxide, it's, it's, ozone is very, very good. Okay. All right. Fair point. Thank you. So let's go to the next question and see what we have from our viewers. Uh, there we go. Dana Saylor asks, climate change may be front and center in the coming election. Any thoughts on how we may take advantage of the opportunity? Well, um, I, I don't know whether it will be front and center. My, uh, <laughs> my experience uh, working with uh, politicians, and I've had a little bit of it, is that most of them don't want to touch controversial issues because uh, they want to get elected. And they're worried that, um, for example, women Republican voters uh, are worried about the climate. And so we might offend them and lose all of their votes. So I, I'm not sure how much uh, mileage we can get out of this. You know, I, I think until the average person recognizes that you know, the climate policies that are being proposed are, are really ruinous. They are doing no good. They're doing enormous harm. Yeah, the policies are worse than the problem. Yes. Then then the politicians will shy away from it. They're, they're just afraid that it'll lose them more votes and they will win. Yeah, you know, and a good point of that is, is that it looked like a couple of weeks ago, President Biden might declare a climate emergency. There was, you know, a lot of talk about it. And we had you know, predicted that he might actually announce a climate emergency uh, on the island of Maui because of Lahaina burning down and all the early reports from the um, incompetent reporters out there that immediately jumped on climate change as the cause for the fire when it had nothing to do with it. And so here's the thing. He backed off from that despite tremendous pressure from environmental groups to declare a climate emergency Biden backed off and didn't do it. And so that says something right there. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the usual balance. He, I mean, his advisors that he listens to probably told him, look, Mr. President, you're going to lose more votes than you'll win if you do this. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Next question. CO2 increases usually lag temperature increases, yet we're seeing just the opposite now. I don't know that that's true. Could it be a different mechanism as responsible for increasing CO2 like the ocean? Well, I mean, if 
CO2 increases are due to uh, burning fossil fuels, and I think there's good evidence that that's the case, you would expect uh, CO2 to go up first, and then it would go down a little bit because some of it gets absorbed by the oceans and by the land and various processes. So uh, at present conditions where we think CO2 is increasing from burning fossil fuels, it's perfectly natural for it to lead. Hasn't history shown us, paleo history shown us that there have been large scale global fires in the past? Oh, yeah. You know, if you know, all you have to do is visit Yosemite and look at these scars on the <laughs> sequoia trees there. You know, there have been horrendous fires, nothing like we've ever seen in the past. There there was a enormous drought around 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 all over the western USA. You know, you can see these pictures of Lake Tahoe, which is practically a mud puddle at that time, and other lakes in that area that were hundreds of feet lower than they are today. There were trees growing on the bottom, uh, which now are flooded by, uh, you know, 100 feet of water. Interesting. Interesting. All right, let's bring on the next question. We have from Michael Johansson, a few physicists and astrophysicists have pointed out a problem with the greenhouse gas theory where the incoming energy is divided by four, resulting in a temperature of minus 18 degrees centigrade, which is far from reality. I think what he might be referring to is the fact that without the GHG effect, that we would have a temperature of the Earth that is essentially non-livable. Well, let, let, let me try to respond. You know, these would be much better conversations if it's just one-on-one, but... The factor of four uh, is from the fact that uh, the area of of sphere, you know, the Earth is four pi r squared. R is the radius. And the area of a disk is pi r squared. So there's a factor of four between the area of the disk that intercepts the sunlight and the area of the sphere that you try to average it over. I never I thought enough. averaging made much sense. You know, but that's what they do. So you're right to question the factor of four. It doesn't make much sense. And it's the old it's the old joke of the physicist assuming that a cow is a sphere. That's right. That's well, what it is. Exactly. That's a great joke. I'm glad you know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I I don't think any of these estimates uh, mean very much, uh, but, but people still make them. <laughs> All righty. So yeah, it's um yeah. The point of all of this is that. The Earth, its climate, its systems are all tremendously complex, and yet many of the suppositions and the predictions out there related to climate change are almost literally simplistic linear projections without taking in this vast complexity of the planet and its processes. And I think this is why we end up with all of these failures. I mean, the, the, modeling the complexity, as Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Judith Curry put it, is a wicked problem because there are so many factors, so many different things controlling how the planet's atmosphere behaves. I mean, we've got everything from water vapor to sunlight to clouds to albedo of plankton in the seas and nutrients and all this kind of stuff. It's hugely complex. And so trying to predict the future based on a system that is wildly chaotic and complex is basically an exercise in futility. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it, the hardest part of physics is really fluid systems, you know, fluid mechanics, because everything is fundamentally nonlinear. You know, lots of other parts of physics are, are pretty linear, you know, electromagnetic theory. You know, if you're trying to calculate how to design a stealth airplane, that's completely linear, you know, uh, quantum mechanics is linear for the most part, but fluids are not. You know, there's a nice uh, joke about that involving uh, Werner Heisenberg, who invented, uh, you know, matrix mechanics, quantum mechanics, and he headed the German nuclear program during World War II, and as a result, after World War II, the Allied forces forbade him to work on nuclear physics. And so instead he worked on fluid mechanics, you know, how, how does the atmosphere work and the oceans work? And, uh, 
he was appalled to find how difficult it was compared to quantum mechanics or nuclear physics. And uh, so the joke is that one of his students said, well, Professor, um, they say that um, if you've lived a good life when you die, uh, when you go to heaven, the good Lord uh, permits you to ask uh, two questions uh, as a physicist, and he will answer both of them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what are you going to ask when, when it's your chance? And so supposedly Heisenberg scratched his head and he said, well, I'm going to ask um, why relativity and uh, why turbulence? And I think the Almighty may have an answer to the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The point was that, you know, fluid systems are too hard even for God. (laughs) They're not. But but anyway, they're very difficult systems. (laughs) I wonder if if Eisenberg ever met Schrodinger's cat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. He knew Schrodinger very well. Schrodinger moved to Ireland and... Yeah. So <laughs> we're we're out of questions for the moment, um, at least ones that are relevant to the discussion. Yeah. So what I, what I, normally we do this at the beginning of the show, but we're doing it at the end of the show today. So Dr. Happer, stick around. We're going to show you a couple of the craziest climate things that happened this week. Uh, one of them happened in Nevada. Uh, this one was just just beautiful. Um, so we have the Burning Man thing going on in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. And there's one road going into it, right? And so these climate protesters decided, hey, this would be a good target for us to push our agenda and block traffic to keep all those evil carbon dioxide spewing vehicles from reaching Burning Man. And so we have a video showing of what the result was. (laughs) The climate activist famous for shutting down highways and wreaking havoc on commuters might be hurting the environment far more than just people going about their every day on the road. Can hear the shrieking. The video of Nevada tribal police blasting through a climate activist roadblock appeared to offer a unique satisfaction that comes with frontier justice, swift justice. But in that video, we missed something. The activists, the climate activists, backed up traffic for miles. Hundreds of cars and trucks and buses sat idling in the hot sun, burning fossil fuels and blasting air conditioning. It's the same thing that happens when climate protesters shut down highways in America's biggest cities. The stop traffic spews fog. In addition, it tends to inconvenience the people most affected by climate change. Working class Americans get the short of the stick. They always do. They miss work and doctor's appointments. Of course, the Davos crowd still gets to fly their private jets around the world. And Yes, yes, protesters did spray paint a few yachts this summer in the Mediterranean, but let's be honest, that got washed off while their guests dined in Saint-Tropez. Nobody missed a dinner reservation. Bachanger Sargon is your opinion editor at... Yep, that was it. That was it. Wasn't that beautiful? You know, the the Nevada Rangers, I got to handle it to them. They said, we're not having any of this bullshit. They just pushed them right out of there like they should because, you know... I think this was Indian Reservation, actually, Rangers. It was uh, not the state of Nevada. Oh. So the, the message is don't mess with Indians. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're done with that. <laughs> well, those activists were just trying to get all those cars to idle so that they can fertilize the desert with some good CO2. Yeah. Yeah. In any event, that kind of wraps up our show for today with that note. Uh, the lesson here is is that if you play stupid games, you'll win stupid prizes. And that seems to be the whole focus of the climate alarmism debate today. We're winning stupid prizes on a daily basis thanks to these folks. 
Anyway, I want to thank you, Dr. Happer, for joining us today. Thank you, Linnea, for your, your sparkling commentary. I want to thank all of our viewers for visiting and watching. Uh, I want to remind everyone to visit climaterealism.com on a daily basis, where we debunk some of the worst news stories about climate out there. Climateataglance.com, which is a perfect reference point for which you can use to argue against some of this insanity. And energyataglance.com, which is Linnea's website, where she talks about, you know, the value of, of, of certain energies uh, and the folly of certain types of energy uh, operations as well. So I want to thank you all. And I would like to say uh, I want to wish everyone a great holiday weekend coming up as we're going to have... Um, barbecues and people driving all over the place, spewing CO2, doing what they do. I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate for the Heartland Institute, wishing you all a great day and a great weekend. Bye-bye. How dare you!